All right. All right, this is the part where I turn off my air conditioning and my fan. Oh, I was supposed to be quiet. <laughs> You're supposed to be quiet, Ethan. Ethan, tell me about my fitness pal. <laughs> As you command. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, I have been using my fitness pal for three weeks now, pretty religiously, logging my food. Um, weekdays only, not weekends. Uh, but it has, well, saying it go, it has gone well is a little reductive, but overall, I would say it has gone well. I have pretty much not missed anything. There was one, uh, one beer I got at a restaurant a couple days ago that I was unable to find on the app and I was logging it like two hours later and I ended up giving up. But I think that is the only food item I have had that I did not log on a weekday over the last three weeks. So feeling very good about that it's kind of nice having the weekend to look forward to where if i have random food in my house that i know is going to just be a pain to log not only unhealthy but often just like inconvenient to log i just save it until the weekend and it also means i eat less of that kind of stuff so that has worked great um it has definitely gamified the experience and i have dramatically cut down on carbs i think i might be eating like half as many carbs as before um and probably, I mean, almost certainly fewer calories, hard to know for sure. But I actually don't mind the experience, surprisingly. At first I did, and now I really don't mind it too much. Uh, and I'm just trying to stick with it on weekdays for the foreseeable future. Nice. Yeah, I th- from what I know of you, I think that if you were to find a groove with food tracking, that it'd be something that you'd like to do. So I feel like that's that's uh, coming true for you. Yeah, so, so far it is kind of fun, but what I've realized is it causes me to do things kind of weirdly, like I eat much less in the morning, but not that much less in the evening, because I like getting ahead. You know, I like knowing I still have 1,500 calories left at 3 o'clock, but then at the end of the day, it's like, oh, well, I still have another 400 because I'm so far ahead, and then I just eat a bunch. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure that out. And also, maybe I'll get more proactive about actually trimming that number down as I feel like I can. Yeah. I think that any way you want to approach it is valid. If you want to like front load your day and have more calories for like all your activities throughout the day and eat less in the evening or vice versa, whatever way you want to do it, it's totally fine. Um, But I I definitely know the feeling of getting to the end of the day and like checking and being like, oh my goodness, I have so many calories. Like it's a party tonight. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's funny because the, some of the foods that I really crave are huge calorie foods and they're not always all carbs, but a lot of things with peanut butter, as we discussed last time, like a peanut butter sandwich, or sometimes I'll just eat like peanut butter and granola. And that'll be like an 800 calorie, tiny little bowl. Um, Easy. And so that stuff, it's only on days where I end up with a huge amount of calories or number of calories remaining at the end. Um, which is, I mean, it would be better if I just didn't eat it at all, but it is, still more effective than just eating that whenever I feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. So in the show notes, you mentioned you bought premium, you bought the, my fitness pal premium. I did. So I want to hear about like your motivation for that and what, what are the additional features and how are you using them? Well, basically I bought premium because you can sign up to start paying for it without your subscription beginning because you get a free month. So I'm on the free month. Uh, and I wanted to see, There are a few things that are really nice. I like being able to click on a macronutrient or even actually, I guess it's not just the macronutrients. It's all the nutrients. And if you click on one, it'll show you what foods were highest in that that you ate that day. And there have been some really surprising things because one of my focuses has been cutting down on sugar. And actually, 
most of my sugar, very surprisingly to me, most of my sugar comes from milk and juice. Two things that I would consider generally pretty healthy, especially juice. And I actually absolutely hate fruit. And I eat fruit super begrudgingly. And I drink juice because I think it is the only way that I will not die in the next five years. And uh, it turns out it is not really that necessary. I'm getting enough of almost all the vitamins that come in the juice in other things. And it is super high in sugar. So I'm dramatically trimming down my juice intake, which has been great because it wasn't even a food I really liked. And that has really cut down my sugar. But that kind of stuff, it was just tricky to to get that kind of an insight without the premium, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. On the juice, on the juice note, I'm not a fan of juice either. I don't mind fruits, certain fruits, but never been a fan of juice. And it's because I, even when there is an added sugar, I feel like it's too sugary of a drink for me. Interesting. And I, this is also speculation or like, probably ill-informed information but my understanding too is eating fruit in its raw form is better for you and when accounting for the sugar because it has a lot it has fiber often Mm -hmm. and they i think those two balance each other out and when you move it into juice form convert it into juice form uh you like destroy all the fiber and then you're just getting the sugar yep um so yeah, not much nutritional benefit there, I don't think. Yeah. Well, yeah, now I also haven't done much research on this, but what I had heard was part of the value of that fiber and eating the whole fruit is that it slows down digestion so you don't get the sugar in your system as quickly too, which would make some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I really don't want to actually eat fruit. So I uh, I do eat bananas occasionally, but um, I then was like, well, do I get enough fiber and other things? And it turns out this is going to be a magnificent segue into another topic. It turns out that I get pretty much all the fiber I need from Huel, my new, yeah. my new primary food source. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. No, it's it's uh for the listeners, Huel is a meal replacement uh, powder. And I think Greg and I talked about it some time ago. I was considering it maybe like four episodes ago, which was probably like six years ago. Uh, but... <laughs> and for... I got to interject for Huel. Uh, you can reach us if uh, from the podcast page. I'm sure there's a contact link. Reach out to me or Ethan. <laughs> you know, set us up with sponsorship. We do accept sponsorships <laughs> from products yes. we truly believe in, like Huel. Right, like Huel. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, my, my old roommate got me into Huel, and I must say, everybody that I had talked to, I, well, I don't think that you were pretty critical on it in this regard, but everybody else I had talked to was really critical on the taste. And I actually think it tastes pretty good. <laughs> I kind of look forward to it. Um, but it is just uh, two large scoops of powder. And then I would use maybe like a cup or two of milk and or water. And a tasty snack that comes with about 400 calories. And it is crazy how nutritious it is. Like, I was very skeptical. And then I did some deep, deep research on it. And it looks like, I mean, I'm sure that it is not as good as eating those same nutrients in food food. But compared to what I would be eating otherwise, it is surely way better for me. Um, yes. And it is so yes, easy. For sure. And yeah, I uh, I have, I think I probably have it pretty much every day. So yeah, yeah. that has really so changed he, things. It's um, interesting that you coming into using Huel because it's something that I had been tracking as a product category for years. Mm-hmm. So there was a product, and it still exists, I'm sure, it was called Soylent, mm-hmm. which was basically the same premise is a powder that contains all your nutrients. And then there was Shiel and there were some other alternatives. And 
Um, I think Huel, at least in my social circles, has become the most popular. It's the most That's how it seems, well, yeah, yeah. And I on the taste, I never found it objectionable. Like I never found it so I didn't find it disgusting. Like I couldn't drink it, but I never really craved it either. It was it was something I was just sort of indifferent to, and something I actually did do for uh, sometimes when I would make the the drink is add in um, powdered peanut butter. Mm. Uh, so uh, one one of the brands is PB Fit. I don't know how they do it, but they somehow take peanut butter and turn it into a powdered form, and you put in a couple teaspoons of that, and it would give it this more peanut buttery flavor to it. Um, Interesting, which was which was nice. Um, I like that, but. Overall, like, Huel was good. It was definitely good in a pinch. When I was in school recently, I would drink it regularly because I just didn't have much time between work and going to class. So it was super easy just to make a Huel and go. So I think it has its place. I haven't drink. I haven't had an order of Huel in a few months at least. So perhaps I, I as I think more and more about my nutrition, maybe I should make make an order yeah just so i have some on hand when for like if i'm in a pinch because it is certainly better than most alternatives yeah. if you're like time crunched you're gonna have a better uh you're gonna be nutritionally better off with fuel mm-hmm. yeah no i definitely find that and even when i'm not time crunched it's really useful well it saves me time still but also if i drink it and force myself to wait some time afterward like that has been another insight of being more careful about what i eat it's like you may be full if you just wait for 10 minutes though i often get very hungry and eat a bunch at a time which is more than i need but with huel it's like if you drink it before you get too hungry and then you wait five minutes before you try to eat something else you will find you really don't need anything else um and that is a huge upgrade from what i would grab out of my snack cabinet otherwise Mm -hmm. totally totally well now they make all these flavor packets i don't know if you've seen those but they have all kinds of yeah. different huel flavors but i i'm a big fan of just the regular huel taste why ruin it just gotta go with that <laughs> well I even, it just tastes kind of like really bland oatmeal i think it's like <laughs> like a nice rich sweet oatmeal i think it's good it's like what i wish oatmeal tasted like i would eat a lot more oatmeal if oatmeal tasted like huel if i could get the uh cinnamon flavored oatmeal Oh, somehow yeah, that the maple yeah. cinnamon into the maple cinnamon flavoring from that into Huel. Then I'd really be. I would not that, be surprised if they have that. What my question is, and I'd have to look into it, is why don't they start to make ind- individual like when they ship the bag of Huel that it be flavored for me? Yeah, that's a good question. I would imagine it's based on uh, production because probably not very many people want any individual flavor. But I don't know. You know, like it's cheaper for them to make a, a million bags of the regular and then just a few of the flavor bags. But I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Huel's decent. I think I've always have to give I, I am you're, you're really high on, on it. it. Yeah, I am super <laughs> high on it right now. Yeah, I'm definitely more of lukewarm towards it. I've recommended it to people before saying like, yeah, I think it's a good meal replacement. It's really good for you. And it's good. It's convenient. Which, if you value those, if you're looking to optimize convenience and health, which is really hard to do, mm-hmm. yeah, Huel is probably your best bet. Right. But you're going to sacrifice in taste and and flavor, but not according to yeah, Ethan, not but according to most to people. <laughs> you know what I'll say? I do feel that I've sacrificed though. Like, uh, there's a although I feel that there is no way to have health and still have any of this aspect. It is like the idea of 
feeling like you were hungry and ate as much as you wanted. Like, there's no sense of that with Yule. Like, sometimes it is so great to go and eat eight slices of pizza. But there is no sense of that with Yule. Like, Yule is the opposite. But honestly, I just find that that is completely incompatible with any level of health metric. So I would yeah. rather just go with the Yule. It doesn't really sacrifice anything from the the alternatives. I'm trying not to do yes. Yule more than once a day, but I must say it is tempting. It is tempting it is to just tempting. get rid of the food in house. Yeah, I've had days where I've done two two heels in a day for sure yeah um and no i get that i i can't or it's hard to articulate but there is something satisfying of saying like i'm just eating whatever i want to eat as much as i want to eat it Mm -hmm. and i don't care um you definitely don't get that when you're being health conscious or when you're using something like Huel, you're not going to get that everything's very pre it's pre-portioned measured out um and even if you wanted to like it just doesn't have that same it's not a satisfactory like, I don't want a second yeah, cup of Yeah, that is exactly I the word, my- <laughs> yeah. The satisfaction is not there. The other thing you reminded me of is when this ca- when I started watching this category a few years ago, um, I recall watching, I think it was for Soylent, though, I recall watching the creator of the product, you know, sort of do these media rounds and pitch it, and he, he recounts the story that when he came up with it in college, that a lot of his friends and family were very concerned. Yeah. They're like, how do you know it's nutritionally safe? How do you know it's good enough for you? Like, how do you know you're not going to just get sick or wither away? And he said that he found that very ironic because no one, no one questioned his diet <laughs> uh, when he was like eating pizza and drinking tons of beer in college, just eating whatever he wanted. No one was like, are you sure that you're getting enough vitamins and minerals? <laughs> yeah, that is very funny that is so true though because yeah it doesn't have to be great it just has to be better and it's surely a lot better yeah Yeah. no i mean i find that it i could go on about this forever but it's just been kind of remarkable because it does make it a lot easier to cut things like juice like it, it has so many of the nutrients that you would be expecting from fruit but not nearly as much sugar that it makes it way easier to not have to go out of your way to get these things so between like between huel and a salad every day i pretty much get all the standard nutrients that are tricky to get like all the the fruits and vegetables nutrients which are the two food Mm -hmm. groups that we all dread um so i yeah i don't know it it would actually just be a lot harder without yule to get even like a well-rounded diet i think yeah and i'm not sure that anyone knows whether it's there's any difference between drinking yule which is yeah uh, fortified with like the minerals and vitamins that you need versus eating raw food that has those. Like I know that. Yeah. Like vitamin pills is, seem pretty ineffective. Right. We seem to know that. Yeah. There's. Mm-hmm. And is it true with Huel too? For for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. And I'm not sure anyone's looked into it. Yeah. Well, I looked into it. If looking into it counts as researching heavily on Reddit. I guess I meant more like <laughs> research. <laughs> Like performing a double blind study or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, I also wonder about that. Yeah. I guess we will see. I mean, there's, it seems like there should be predictable ways you could study this, right? Like maybe I should stop eating any vitamin A except what I get in Huel and then see if my vision goes bad. I think that's the thing that happens if you don't eat vitamin A. High, that sounds high incredibly cost dangerous. Stick, but... <laughs> <laughs> you might have a hard time doing your job uh, if you can't see anymore. <laughs> I'll just eat Huel again and I'll come back to life. It'll be reanimated. Yeah. Well, that is Huel. I, uh, I'm trying to think if I have anything else to say about it. I just 
so full of praise where to stop it's pretty good it's pretty good check it out if you haven't yeah. if you're trying to optimize convenience and health yeah. you're gonna have a hard time being and what, that's my actually my no I, I do have a final thing so there's like there's the convenience health deliciousness and price metrics but Huel <laughs> scores really well on three of those four like it's not amazing mm-hmm. price it's actually not as cheap as i thought i sort of expected it was gonna be like 75 cents a meal but it comes out to being like two dollars and 15 cents a meal and so you buy one of these big bags and you're like wow i just spent 35 bucks on a bag of powder but i mean it's still cheaper than what you would be eating as an alternative and certainly for food of that health level you would spend quite a lot more um like uh, probably dramatically more i think like a box of salad is probably like over three dollars and i'm doing that in like 215 for a serving of fuel so it, it does still score really well there yeah agreed agreed the price is something i had a similar reaction at first i was like oh this is more expensive than i anticipated but when you really sit down and think about it it you're winning on the price front as well yeah very true but i think i think there are my praise ends why don't you uh this is the other item in follow-up why don't you tell us about your revelation about programming languages yeah, so this probably is going to be much of a revelation for for you uh, or so. for others in programming. But uh, I mentioned in the last episode that I had been exploring the Go programming language as a part of my season of exploration. Mm-hmm. Your year and of exploration, right? My year. Well, I said season, but I said uh, it could be as long as a year. Okay. It could be as long as a whatever. It doesn't matter. The uh, And so I've read a pretty sizable proportion of the programming in go uh ebook that i got it's published by DigitalOcean. okay and i also watched a significant portion of how to program in go from free code camp uh this youtube video that free code camp puts up and so i've seen a lot of the features for of the language now i haven't done any actual real work or projects in the language so you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. But my revelation was that trying to research and understand the benefits of a programming language by reading articles or Reddit threads is basically useless. And the, the, how I how I came to this conclusion is that before investing any time into learning Go or even just, you know, exploring Go... I would just Google, like, why learn Golang? Mm-hmm. And I read Reddit threads, and I read Medium blog posts and other things. And the reasons that people cite in those articles often don't match up with my own experience with the language. Mm, okay. So one of, the, one of the main benefits that's often touted for Go is that it's very easy to read and write and that it's clear. And I don't think that that's true (laughs) (laughs) because I come from such a different background. If you started with C or C++, you probably think Go is really easy to read and write. I think everything is easy to read and write, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's where a lot of the, like, I think there's a lot of transition between these two. People would say one of the benefits is you can just pick up Go and start start coding and it's going to feel great and natural. No, it doesn't. Not if you're from Python. Yeah. Not if the first language that you learned was Python. Everything is more verbose and, frankly, just in my to me, a little more confusing about the language because I come from Python. Um, 
so that was sort of the revelation there of like, it's really hard to understand the benefits or how you're going to feel about a language um, because everyone's background is so unique. Mm. And uh, the only way you would really have a good proxy is if you know the person who's writing the article comes from a similar background as you did. Yeah. So that is very interesting. Golang still seems really promising and something I think I will continue to like explore and do little toy projects in. Um, but I just found it interesting. Like as I, I don't know, I've maybe invested 12 hours total in this language. So I've seen, I've seen a lot, like everything that I can do in Python, I've seen go for loops, just assigning variables, doing basic mm-hmm. operations. And I kept waiting for the moment where like things would click and I'd be like, yeah, this is easy to like read and write and understand. And it's just never really happened um, because I just come from such a different background. Things are just totally, totally different in the Python world. Mm-hmm. I do think some of it is is sort of like a bias about how those articles are written and who their who their expected audience is. Because usually the kind of person who says, why learn Golang is, you know, a programmer who has worked with some low level languages and is like, why would I bother to switch away from what I'm used to? Because I suspect that a lot of the cases where go is considered as a good alternative is for systems programming for relatively low level stuff and not as an alternative to really high level languages like python i think there are cases but i suspect that it's less frequent and so it probably it probably would be only the only way you might get a good comparison is to say why learn go over python you know and there's probably Mm -hmm. a lot fewer of those articles because even in terms of like data sciencey stuff I've basically seen Go brought up as an alternative for some data engineering, but never for like data science itse- itself. And so it no. seems to be more performance critical stuff. It is. Yeah, that's certainly true. And it was part of why, part of the reason I selected Go as a language I wanted to explore was for that very reason. Like I wanted a language that was orthogonal to Python. Mm. Since I have a good understanding of Python, I wanted something that was had a different focus. So on the surface, it's, it's a very different language simply because it's statically typed instead of dynamically typed and it's compiled instead of interpreted. So like, that's the high level stuff where like, yeah, those are two obvious huge differences, but then also the, the uh, focus of the core developers of go is very different. And for that, I will praise them. So a few of the things I did was watch, some conference talks by some of the creators of Go explaining their thought process and um, why they implemented Go the way they did and why, how things have changed through Go. So they're on Go 1.14 now. And the joke sort of in the, in the Go community is that Go 1.14 is basically Go 1.0. Because okay. things don't really change much in the Go language. And that's by design. And they put a really high value on simplicity in the terms of the way the language is implemented. Because complexity has cost. And when you have large development teams working on back-end processes, simplicity just trumps complexity every time. So one of the reasons they don't have classes in their language is because of simplicity. Mm-hmm. And some other reasons, too. So... For those reasons, like the surface level stuff and some of the more uh, detailed nuance, like implementation details, I was like, oh, Golang seems like a really, it's an orthogonal language to Python. So it would complement my skill set well if I were to learn it. Um, But 
the revelation there is sort of like, well, I don't do any of the things that goes really, really good at doing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I guess I should have caught that earlier. Right. But yeah, but you could, the things it, that it will give you context around those things at least. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That is true. And I could now, like I have a skill, like if I continue and really learn go, cause I still don't think I like no go. Like I, I have a surface level understanding, but if I continue down, continue on and uh, learn more about go and really start to code in it, I will have a more, I'll have a skill set that complements Python's. So I can do data analysis in Python, but build data pipelines with Go, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that would be very cool. I don't really have any language to turn to like that, which I sort of miss. Like, I guess just from hacking things together, I have a passable knowledge of JavaScript, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm like ready to build something in JavaScript. It's more like I make updates to code that already exists or put in an individual function here and there. Um, and mm-hmm. it is, it is definitely nice to be fluent in more than one programming language. I think it gives you a little more perspective. Right. No, I agree. And one of the nice things about go that I remembered when you mentioned JavaScript is that it does also extend my capabilities into some other, uh, languages just through being able to transpile, I guess, into other languages. So you can transpile into JavaScript. Oh, that's interesting. And WebAssembly. Hmm. Like there are, um, but I haven't really explored that part of the language. So I just want to preference like my understanding of it could be way off. Um, but my understanding is like it can complement web development. Yeah. Because it's often used as web, a web backend. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it makes sense that there could, it can complement the front end in some ways. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I did look into building an API in Go once. I think I mentioned this in the last episode and I was just appalled by how many lines it was going to take. Like, you can build... Have you ever heard of a CRUD app? No. So it's create, read, update, delete. It's basically like, can you create an API endpoint that allows a user to do all those things? So create mm-hmm. a new record, a read a record, update a record, delete a record. Okay, yeah. Um, so CRUD apps are usually like the very basic sample uh, APIs often. And in Python, you can write a CRUD app in literally like 20 lines, maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. it might be fewer, yeah. actually. And in Go, it was going to be like 100. And I was like, what? Like, what are all these lines? Why must I do all these things? And a bunch of things were like this dot this dot this. Because I was pulling, yeah. I think, from their standard library, which is multi-tiered. Um, and I was like, this is uh, this is not what I like. This is not what I'm yeah. accustomed to. <laughs> no, I, I totally get that feeling. And one thing that Go does, too, that probably added to a lot of the boilerplate in that example is the way that they handle errors. Mm. So every time you call a function, it returns two parts. And the first part is the actual element that you want it returned. And like the second part is if you, you, when, if you assign it to multiple uh, variables, if you do a comma B, the first part is what you wanted from the function, presumably. And here comes, here's the kicker. The second part is an error that is implicit. Like it's always going to be returned. If you do not accept it, Go knows what to do and understands and says, okay, I'm just going to give you the returned object. But if you say X comma Y, Y will be this error. And the paradigm or the the standard practice is then to immediately evaluate Y in this example and say like, if Y is not null, then like go yeah, into so this flow control. Yeah. So that's and exception it's used handling all basically? the time. It's their exception handling. Correct. So if you don't, if you just say x equals call my function, you don't pull y into a variable with the exception. 
what happens if there's an exception within the underlying function? So I think what would happen is like X isn't going to be what you thought it should be. So it's going to fail later on. But oh, they but want it you. It doesn't actually bubble up the exception in some other way. No. Ugh. No. That's not. No, I do not think so. No. I they have want read a lot to... of people complaining about Go's exception handling and saying it's verbose and bizarre. And that. Yes. Oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I. It's one thing. It was one too where I. My immediate reaction was like, oh my goodness. Because I've gotten really used to try accept in mm. Python. And it's nice. Like it just feels from someone who doesn't is like still very new to programming. Try accept or try catch. It feels right. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, of course you would do it this way. Yeah. For whatever reason, Python just clicks with my brain in ways. Well, that, that I mean, I'm that way, sure to be fair, is really common across. Yes, it is. Almost it is. every You're right. language. Yeah. But the way that Go does it is certainly different. Now, I guess the I don't know the exact thought process behind it, but if you're confident that 100 percent of the time you're going to get the right thing back you don't have to put the exception handling in but for an api call like crud app you're not sure that you're always going to get the right thing like you need to check and make sure that uh, that every time you call the api you're getting the right element back Mm -hmm. the right object back and that you didn't get an error um, because the database is down or whatever so the that's how you do your exception handling i saw that Within the Go community, there was a very controversial issue on the GoLang that was to put in oh, a yeah, new, I saw this. yeah, yeah, short, shorthand like some syntactic sugar for doing error exception. Mm-hmm. And eventually, it was it was closed. Like they didn't accept it, and the community was very split. Some people were like, "I wanted this." Other people were like, "This doesn't even solve the core problem." Mm-hmm. Um, so this made some programming it, newsletter that I read. Yeah, I think it was probably on Hacker News as well. Like, it made the rounds. It was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, one of the most active issues I'd ever seen on GitHub. And there yeah. was, like, Reddit threads with tons and tons of comments, lots of upboots, lots of community. Like, and, you know, praise to the community for that. Yeah. Like, people are really engaged and they care. So that's a great thing. Um, it's unfortunate they haven't yet landed on, like, a solution. But they're still working on it, I'm sure. I'm sure this isn't done yet. Mm-hmm. So they'll go back to the drawing board and figure out what it is that they need to implement to make this less verbose and for go 2.0, I guess I highly doubt that. I'm not sure they're ever going to get a 2.0. Yeah, It doesn't. Sound like it. it is <laughs> no, so interesting no. because this conflict in languages between the commitment to backwards compatibility and the ability to actually add new features. Like Python's an interesting use case. I think they've walked the line pretty carefully, but People on both sides just complain constantly. They're like, I can't believe how quickly things change. It breaks all my old code. It's so hard to use this in an enterprise setting because we're constantly changing things and the versions aren't the same. And then other people are like, yeah, but we can't modernize this old language that has nothing new. Uh, yeah, and I, I, you won't ever make everybody happy, but it is kind of nice to have programming languages on, languages on the extreme. Like it sounds like Go is much more in the stay in your, your current ways and try to update as little as possible. Yep. Yep. I think that's accurate uh, depiction. Yeah. And one of the points, one of the points that was made in one of the conference talks I watched was that uh, they went to a conference about programming languages. So there were representatives from Java, Python, Mm. C, Rust, like every language. And they were just talking about their communities and the features they're looking to implement and just, you know, bouncing ideas off each other, you know? And one of the themes that, uh, he came away with the, it was that 
a lot of languages are just looking to borrow from other languages and mm. what they're doing. So Java might look at C or some other language and say, oh, they're adding this. So like we need to add that yeah. and vice versa. And Go is not like that at all. Like they're not really inter- as in- very interested in what other languages are doing. They have a very specific lane, so to speak, that they want to stay in their lane and and play their role and do it well and do it simply. Mm-hmm. Like they're not looking to add complexity just to add features. Anything that gets added to the language has to have a really um, defined use case and reason to be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. At the same time, I think that those languages that have that kind of a mentality where, you know, they they sort of have a mission and they have a clear way that they want to do things. Like, it reminds me a little bit of what, now, admittedly, I don't use these languages, but some of the functional languages like Haskell are like, um, where they are very committed to this very particular way of being, but sometimes that just becomes impractical. Um, even like Scala, which is purely functional and I, I think, uh, has some way of preventing you from having side effects in your functions. Like that is really cool, but I'm not sure that that is the most practical thing to have in a language. Like sometimes you will need to allow people to break the rules. And I am very glad those languages exist because I think they give really good ideas to the languages that just become aggregators of other ideas, which is totally what Python is. And it's one reason I've stuck with it because Python, I think Python took async and await from go, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically, they find features that other languages have that are useful, and they just grab them. Which, right. as the user, that's what I want. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that approach. But you bring up a really great use case of when the borrowing doesn't go so well, perhaps, is the concurrency async and await that Python borrowed from other languages. Yeah. Is that Go is designed around this idea of concurrency, and being able to make a concurrent application that then can be parallelized really efficiently. And it handles a ton of the stuff for you in the back end, and there's almost no boilerplate. Mm. You just put like the keyword go in front of your function call or call to some code, and then Py- uh, go will under, you know, behind the scenes handle the concern- concurrency for you. Like, it's very, very easy to build an application and make it concurrent. Yeah. Now, you may not always want to do it for overhead reasons and stuff. It doesn't always make sense, but it's easy to do with very, very little code. Like, three characters and you have concurrency. And in Python, that's not the case. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it's like, kind of messy and complicated, and there's a lot of code that gets involved with taking a single-threaded process and making it concurrent and then parallelizable. So, like, that's sort of the difference is, like, Go, because they don't borrow, they make things very, very simple for what their their intended use case is versus when Python is, like, borrowing features, you end up having to find ways to implement it that can often create, like, more Mm. bloated code base. Yeah. Yeah, there there were a lot of uh, complaints. I'm trying to remember. In the in the original async implementation in Python, they introduced like a really weird combination of keywords. Oh, I forget. I want to say yield from, but yield from is still around. But basically, there was a way to do something that required you combining two other keywords. And I remember reading Fluent Python, which is like my favorite programming book. And the author was extremely critical. He was like, I understand that we don't want to add new keywords to language for complexity uh, complexity reasons and things, but 
these bizarre constructs of existing keywords don't make any sense. And it seems like eventually we're going to have a Python keyword that's like def generator from yield uh, coroutine. <laughs> and he was like, we need to just have the right words for things. Right, so, right. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, yeah. I guess I don't know this area well enough. Like language theory is something I'm very interested in, but something I know very little about. So I can't really speculate intelligently. Me either, me either. And this is my first like diving into another language. So um, I'm still learning a lot as I go along. But mm. it's Go was an interesting language to sort of start with because it is such a polar opposite language mm. to Python in a lot of respects. And even to other modern languages like Swift. So I did a little digging on Swift to sort of understand where that plays. And I don't know a lot about it, but one thing I learned really quickly was that when you compare Go and Swift, the first thing you'll notice is Swift is very unstable for the least language. They're like on Swift 5. The language has changed a ton. Um, There's often some frustration in the community, it sounds like. Some people embrace the change because they're like, the language is getting better all the time. And other people are like, I just invest a lot of my time <laughs> into learning language and now the whole, everything's changing. Yeah. This is really frustrating. Go has not changed. Like, you could, it's likely you could grab code written in Go 1.0 and run it on 1.14 and it runs successfully. Interesting. Yeah, that, Swift I mean, would not work that nice. way at all. Yeah. Yeah, so it's they thought very carefully of like, what does it mean to be 1.0? And, like, from there, we are going to move glacially slow. Yeah. Like, the language is barely going to change. And I really appreciate that. You know, it's a trade-off, right? Because you're not adding any complexity. You're not getting any new features. But as a developer, when you learn Go, like, you know it. And you can feel very confident for Mm -hmm. years into the future. You're going to be very – you're going to be a uh, competent Go programmer. You're not going to have one day where Swift 6 gets released and you have to start from scratch or, like, near scratch, right, and relearn everything. I must say, I really, I have, I've gained a new level of admiration for the people who take care of projects like that, because um, at work, I manage packages that other people use, which is a little bit like a programming language. I mean, obviously, it's like an order of magnitude simpler, but the idea that you create and maintain an API that other people rely on means that when you make breaking changes, you have to upgrade to a new major version, and a lot of, a lot of annoyance for users comes with that. Um And I have found it very difficult not to move to new major versions. It's like sometimes a significant change will happen that you need to support. And you're like, oh, well, this is going to impact a bunch of things. And I don't really see a good way not to make it a breaking change. So we're just going to say new major version. Um, And the architectural sense and design sense that comes or that is required to avoid that kind of thing is really remarkable. Like that is super impressive because a lot of things have changed since Go 1.0, I'm sure, like in the outside world. And managing not to have breaking changes in that time is pretty wild. So maybe I should read more about the how the Go creators manage that. Yeah, I think it would be a very useful case study. Because um, I, I agree. I've made a, a few APIs, and it's so challenging. It's so challenging to design it well to to be a solid piece of software into the future yeah um it's often the case that it's difficult to anticipate all the users needs and how they would want to use what you've built that's one thing i struggle with and this along with environmental changes then breaking my code yeah um so it's i totally agree it's very impressive something that um i guess as you think about language programming language theory 
you can look at Go and say, you know, how did they create such a stable language, such a stable API compared to Swift, right? To compare these two and say, yeah. why is it that Swift changes so frequently compared to Go? And maybe it's just that the realms they play in are so totally different, right? Because Swift is more, it's oriented towards iOS and Mac apps. And perhaps like that platform has changed so much over a decade that it only makes sense that the language has to change that much versus Go, I guess it maybe is playing in a space that was already more stable. I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. but just some thoughts. Uh, But I, I, I would encourage people to look at Go as a language and say, how do we make our language a little bit more like Go? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be Go, but in terms of sort of embracing the simplicity is a feature and how do you create a stable programming language that doesn't, uh, you know, dramatically change every few years is, is admirable. I think like, you know, I'm not very in tune with Python community, even though that's my normal language. I don't like follow the core developers and like what's happening, but is there talk about Python four already? I don't, I haven't seen I haven't anything. Heard anything. I've been wondering yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. I need to pick up Plume Python, by the way. I was I put that in my Amazon cart. Awesome. Oh, like, I need to. Yeah, I'm ready to graduate from learning Python. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, if you ever come to Chicago, next... you can borrow the book. I have the whole 400 page or whatever it is. I think it's more than that actually. 600 page book. I decided I'm going ebook. This I bought nice. the learn, learning Python as a physical book, and it was nice to have as a physical book, but it's just too big. It's too bulky. Um, yeah. So it kind of. Uh, hurts me when I want to just do a quick reference on something. Totally Because sometimes I don't have the book with me, especially when I was, when we were, you know, prior to quarantine yeah. working in the office. I'd be like, I really would like to have my learning Python book with me right now, but yeah. I don't. Yeah. Anyways. That book's great. I'd, I'd like to see if there's a new edition coming out before buying it just yet, because I, I think they might be due for one, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I saw that there, there was a second edition, yeah. but that was a few years ago. So yeah, there might be a third. I don't know. Oh uh, yeah. That's a good call out. All right, enough enough programming talk for us today. So you you wrote down. Speaking of all the programming, though, you wrote down that you are vimming all the things. What's up yes. with you and vim? vim? Vim all the things. End of discussion. No. Great, perfect. Um, yeah, I'm glad we agree. We 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 decree this to the whole to all. <laughs> oh, of... I've been trying. <laughs> so we we talked last podcast, maybe a podcast before, that you were like really on the vim bandwagon and like you felt it the you the phrase you use is that it's in your fingertips like you could really feel powerful and and you know <laughs> it, it had finally clicked i guess and i sort of walked away from that and was like you know what you know last time i tried to really embrace vim um it went okay but then i ended up falling off and i decided you know what i'm going to i'm going to really try to commit myself this time i'm going to have to be determined and I am going to really learn how to use Vim and make it so that I don't want to ever use anything but Vim. So I have a Vim and VI book that I bought a few years ago, and I decided to pick that up. It's a super easy read. You can just like skim through the chapters and like pick up the new uh, key bindings for different mm-hmm. functions. Is this the O'Reilly so one? Like, it is the okay, O'Reilly one. Okay, I've been thinking about that one. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure that the book is fine. You know, it's fine, but I'm not sure you need it. Like, you could do, like, a Vim tutorial online or, like, Vim. I'm sure there's websites or blogs or whatever that detail all the same information. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
so I like went through, I refreshed myself on the basics. I went through some of the more advanced features. And then I decided that on all my machines, I was just going to put Vim, turn Vim on. So I put Vim in VS Code. I put Vim in my terminal. And now I'm like in love with it. I can't. I'm so it's pleased so to hear this. useful. <laughs> it's so very useful. I would say I like, I mostly feel it in my fingertips is where I would describe myself. There's sometimes I have to look things up. I'm like, what? Like, I want to do this action. But I've gotten to the point now, instead of like reaching for the mouse, I go back to the browser. Yeah. And I'm like, Vim, do a thing. Like, how do I do whatever? And I find the key bindings and then I go and like, I'll practice it a few times and try to like get it into, um, into muscle memory. But it's very, it's so powerful. Yeah. So very, the one thing that took me, <laughs> it really frustrated me at first, was that the way that Vim handles the um, the buffer. Yeah. So what, what would often happen? Yeah, what would often happen is I would like look at a line, and then I'd look at a line of code a few lines below or above, and I'm like, I want, I want this code here. Like I want to move it. And I would grab that line of code, move up to the new spot, delete that line, and then add the new line. And then what I'm doing is re-adding the deleted line because it adds yeah. – deleting is a cutting, and it's basically clearing my buffer and adding the new what, Wait, line yeah, we should slow down just for listeners. Okay, so basically <laughs> you, you cut a line. It's like if you were in Word and you cut a line, and then you went down a couple more lines and you were going to paste that line, but first you deleted the text that was already there. The problem with is the problem is with Vim. If you delete a line in a specific way, the common way, it actually overwrites what's on your clipboard. And so then, when you paste, you just pasted the thing you just deleted, right? Yep, correct. It is infuriating. Yes, and it's really infuri- Like the Vim book walks you through this, and it's like, hey, buffers are a little bit different than you're used to in Vim, but it's still something that when the keyword is delete, I think delete. Like you're not mm-hmm. going to save this anywhere. But it does. But I found a different workaround for this anyways for having named buffers. And this was something I like messaged you because I was so excited about this. I'm like, this is like, it's clicking. Like name buffers are the way to do things. And you can also, so what a name buffer is, is before you copy or cut some text, you can specify to them, hey, I'm about to copy or cut. And when I do so, I want you to assign it to this namespace. And the name is simply a single character. So you could say X or A or Z, whatever. It doesn't matter. And so you preface this all to Vim with a couple of keystrokes. And then you copy your text. And then it stores it in the named buffer. So then you can move to the line where you want to place it. Erase anything that's currently there. And that's going to go into the default unnamed buffer. And then you call to paste from the named buffer. So you say, hey, I named this Vim or named it A, so Vim, paste what is in A, and then it just drops the text correctly. And that has really helped, like, this. Sometimes I still make the mistake where I, like, am moving quickly and I don't think to use the name buffer, but that has helped eliminate a lot of the frustration with copying and pasting. I I tried it as soon as you told me about it. I do like it. It's a few more keystrokes than I would like. I need to get used to it because choosing which which buffer to put it in is actually... I haven't decided how to do that yet um, because A is the example 
that I've seen, but it's kind of far. I don't know. This is also detailed, but <laughs> you, I, I know that I'm going to find one that I always use. I'm just going to use the same name buffer over and over because I'm only going to paste the text once most of the time. And I just need to figure out what is the fastest way I can move my hands and get it embedded in my fingers. Right. The only thing you got to be careful of is if you get to advanced user level with these, you can have multiple clippings, clips across different names mm-hmm. and be careful not to overwrite an existing name because that could really burn you yeah if you copied a whole lot of text there. into different um, ones which i think is unlikely yes but also wait are we are we using the terminology right are these buffers or are these registers i don't know i think they're registers because i think i think the buffer is actually uh the file in vim okay each each representation of a file i think but i don't remember this for sure i don't know either to me that's semantics like <laughs> yeah but it does get important it's important past. it's yeah. important it is important but i but, agree it is just semantics um the other thing that i learned is to pin a spot in vim in a file oh this i so have you can tried. mark a location yeah. so so perhaps in the in a scenario the, imagine this scenario you have a p a block of code you want to copy and you want to move it a hundred lines down right so what you can do is from where you currently are, so, so assume you are already at the spot you want to drop the code. You're 100 lines down from where you where the code is that you want to move. You can mark that line, and the keyword is M. The key binding is M. Okay. And you say, mark this spot, and you can mark it with a, a name like you do with the name registers. So you say, like, name A, like mark A, and then you jump up 100 lines, grab the block of code, put that in a named register, and then... You, with one keystroke, jump back down 100 lines to exactly where you were, and then you can drop the code there. So it creates it creates this nice workflow. When you do need to start rearranging files, mm-hmm. like large box codes around, you can easily mark spots, jump to where you want code, put it in a namespace, move back to where your mark is, and drop it. And you don't have to worry. It creates just this nice little flow versus when my experience is like, you can move very quickly around a file in vim but often a case it's like jumping large blocks and then like tapping j or k a lot mm -hmm. to like get exactly where you want to be and when you just mark the line when you mark your spot you can just one keystroke your back it's really nice that does sound pretty good i'll have to try it now do you have line numbers on i do okay so i mostly used to use line numbers to jump around but now i've even changed a little more um I saw one of our coworkers using this thing called relative number. Do you know what I'm talking about? So you can set up Vim so that instead of showing the number each line is, so like the first line is one and the last line is however many lines your file has. Instead, the line you're on has its actual number. If you're on line seven, it says seven next to it. But then above, one line above says one, and two lines above says two, and three lines above says three. And below, one line below says one, one, two lines below says two. And so it's actually how many more lines away that other line is from where you are. And that means yep. that you can use like 6J to go to the line labeled yes. 6. That's smart. And that is super helpful. That has really changed the game. So now instead of always doing absolute numbers to move around, which means I was often typing like, if I, if I was working in a big file, it was like, 500 g over and over moving around and now it's just like 6j 3k you know back and forth and that Mm -hmm. has really helped and it also means that for some of those jump arounds it's not so bad because if you go up 100 you know you need to go down 100 and so the marking will probably help but i think that that current workflow has not been that clunky so far 
That's fair. No, that makes a whole lot of sense. I think there's still space for marking, but I will look into creating the relative lines because jumping... It's just hard to judge with your eye exactly yep. how many lines you need to go down. Six, seven, I eight, always get it wrong. Sure. Well, it's super helpful yeah. for multi-line, multi-line yanking. So quite mm-hmm. often you're like, delete the next uh, how many lines? And then you try to do the yes. math in your head and it's much easier just to have the numbers. Totally. So I think there's a, a role to play with both. Mm-hmm. Especially when the code block you or the code spot, the spot you want to jump to, that you want to mark, is hundreds and hundreds of lines away. Because you would have to remember yeah. what's the number, relative number. Like it would, that would be difficult. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, but the relative relative position of line numbers makes total sense for them. It's such a that's a perfect. That is something I've been uh, desiring, but hadn't really re- realized that it's like I should look into how to change yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. So much of them is like you just have to watch other people use it. And then you see these things where you're like, oh, that solves a problem I had, but I hadn't really considered that this solution could exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear Vim is going well for you. I'm going to have to read that book, too, I think. Yeah. And having it in the terminal is really nice as well mm-hmm. because it's the key bindings are the same. So I can, like, jump if I have a long terminal. Oh, you command, have it in your I command can, prompt. Okay. Yeah. So I can, like, move from, by default you're in insert mode. Mm. If you hit escape, then you move into normal mode and then you have all the normal key. You can jump to the end of the line, beginning line, move words, cut, whatever. Now, do you use ZSH? Yes. Okay. So have you noticed, well, you also use bash in some places, right? Yeah, sometimes. Have you noticed the Vim uh, behavior is different in the command line in those two shells pretty in a pretty significant way? Uh, no, I'm not aware of that. So basically, if you... If you uh, go into normal mode on a line and then you go back into insert mode on some random character, you can type new things and you can delete the things you typed, but you cannot go into insert mode and hit backspace. It won't work. You can't delete text that you haven't added in that current insert mode. Interesting. If that makes any sense. And it drives me crazy. I'm sure it can be configured somehow and I just haven't bothered to Google it. Um, But it's really difficult. I can. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, I just tried it. Maybe, maybe I didn't. Let me, let me make sure I'm doing this correctly. Okay. So I have, I am in insert mode. Okay. Okay. Type some stuff. And I just type some, type some stuff. Then I move into normal mode. Okay. And then I can like back up a few characters to the middle of the text. Right. Let me, sorry. Let me open a new window and follow along. Okay. So typing some things okay and then back up yeah go into normal mode and back up and then go into insert mode and hit backspace yep mine dings at me and doesn't work mine works uh we have different settings Interesting. i'm using a plugin by the that might be the difference I, how did you set your vim within your console within v- zsh did you do like bind key yeah bind key dash v yeah so i did um i tried that and it wasn't it didn't feel right so then I used within my ZSHRC, I added a plugin VI dash mode, hmm. which comes by default with ZSH. Oh, my ZSH. And that has all the expected. Um, it feels right, basically. Gotcha. I think that can be changed because in Vim itself, that behavior has occurred a few times. I have used Vim on certain machines where that happens inside a Vim file. And it, mm-hmm. there is a setting you put in your VimRC to change that. And I probably can do it in ZSHRC. So you might be able I'll to just to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wasn't sure if like the plugin made sense or if using the bind key dash V made sense. Like what would be preferred. Yeah. But I just went with the plugin and it seems to be working fine. I'll have to report back. Yes. Next time we talk and say whether or not it's a dumpster fire or whatever. So, cause like the terminal has been very recent. I've been using Vim now since we last spoke in my text editor, but the, the addition to the terminal is a much more recent change. Mm. If something in my brain clicked and I said, can I get Vim in the terminal? And they're like, yeah, you can. Yes, so yes you can. That I've been using for years. And that was a huge game changer. It does make things so much easier. Jumping to the beginning and end of line, jumping word by word. That stuff is really nice. Mm-hmm. So nice. All right. Okay. Um, so it, I, I have on the show notes that you are using Paprika 3, an app that I am not paid to espouse, but do espouse pretty regularly. Yeah. So again, you know, Paprika, if you're listening, you know, you can get our contact information. What's up? <laughs> I'm going to keep making app, that joke. Endorse you. <laughs> For everything we ever talk about, which is like most of what we talk about is just stuff we're using. So yeah, this joke's going to get just old. just a matter but... of time until Apple reaches out to us. <laughs> Agreed. So... Uh, I took the plunge and I bought Paprika 3 because I was just not feeling the way we were trying to check recipes. I found it really annoying. And uh, I value your reviews very highly, Ethan. So I was like, you know what? Let me try Paprika. And I do have a question. Is when you're adding a recipe to Paprika, do you always use their built-in browser to do that within their app? Usually I would like find it in Safari. And then copy okay. the link and put it in their browser to rip the recipe out of it. Because I don't really gotcha. like exploring in their built-in browser. I don't either. And that was sort of my question. The thing I didn't know, and I didn't find it, was do they have a browser extension that could just do this for you? It doesn't... The answer seems like no. Uh, You mean for for Mac? Or Yeah. Oh, I don't or, know about that. Yes. So I would I think, didn't think it. they might be on the share sheet. Um. I haven't checked, so I'll look up a recipe. Okay. So if I click on roasted tomato raisins, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Yeah, Paprika 3 is one of the things on the share sheet. And if I click on it, it says downloading, and now it's a recipe. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can do it right from there. So you can can do it from iOS. You can do it from, Mm -hmm. and, but on the browser, maybe it's different. I did see that there was oh, a the remarkable browser, difference yeah, between. I don't know. Yeah, there's a remarkable price difference between the iOS app and the Mac app. Yeah, well, I forget how much is the Mac and app. Thirty dollars. Ooh, and the iOS app. Did is I buy $5. that? I might have some regrets. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny because the iOS app is way better. I just I never use the Mac app. I may have bought it at one point just for consistency because I use it so heavily. Oh, I do have it, man. That does seem like a waste of thirty dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just a little shocked. I was like, "Well, I could see like 10. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, iOS app feels good. I was like, Especially, "It has the right. same functionality too." I guess some of it is just like people's expectations of price. People tend to be willing to pay more for computer apps, but it seems like a lot. Well, all this is going to change soon, right? Yeah, that's true. If you upgrade yeah. your Mac. So it'll make development costs much more efficient, which I'm actually really looking forward to. This is a great example of like why Apple computers moving to ARM could be a really great thing. Because I do I I am rubbed the wrong way when 
you have to pay twice for an app. Yes. Though I get it. Mm-hmm. I, I can understand. I'm like, okay, well, the development for both these apps was, was, was different, right? It wasn't the iOS development and the Mac development were totally separate. But when the price difference is so dramatic, that is when it really, really rubs mm-hmm. me wrong way where I'm like, well, come on. Like I wanted, I want it all connected. If I'm on my computer, I do want to access Paprika. That sounds convenient, but I'm not willing to pay six times what I paid for. Yeah. Uh, that iOS app. Yeah. That one is brutal. Well, what do you think of the we're app? Definitely, oh, sorry. I think it's good. Yeah. I think it's good. I was just going to joke and say, we're definitely not going to get sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Anyways, the app is good. The app is really good, and its ripping of the recipes is very strong. Like I, I have not really seen any. Yeah. yeah, I've not seen a single problem yet. It's um. So we're still like building up our catalog, and we still have we haven't really messed with every feature yet. We need to start building like sort of categories to quickly reference different things. Like, and uh, do you use the pantry feature or the grocery not. meal planning gross- feature? Oh, not the not the meal planning. I use groceries and recipes mainly. Gotcha. So that was what I was wondering is like, what parts of it do you use? Do you find the most value? Yeah, I have considered the pantry part. Um, I will say with more food tracking, I feel like my my food purchases are more discreet and I know how much I'm eating of things. And so maybe the pantry would make sense now in the past. It was like, I don't know. Like I just ate like some unknown amount of the thing that I cooked from seven different ingredients. You know, it's really hard to keep track of what's available and what I should eat and stuff. Maybe it's possible now, but to me that sounds like overhead. Like I just, I, I have kind of built a habit in myself where every time I look in my cabinet and use something, if it's low, I add it to the list, the grocery list. And so I don't feel like keeping track of the pantry is terribly useful. Mm-hmm. I could see using the meal planning with the grocery list could be really good because yeah, from the documentation, it seems like if on Friday or Saturday you plan your whole next week, it then compiles a comprehensive grocery list of, or at least a list of every ingredient you need. And then you could reference and say do i have enough eggs Mm. do i have enough spices and all this stuff and then you can like drop things off the grocery list very easily it's like if you have enough eggs you just easily say like don't add the eggs yeah so that's true yeah but what i found is i just so dislike the idea of having different ingredients at different times like i know this is how regular people live where they're like this week i'll cook this and next week i'll cook this and i'm like that is a recipe for madness um you know, I, I, it's uh, every day I eat a salad, every day I eat some eggs, every day I eat some Huel, and when I'm close to out, I add it to the list and I buy some more. And it just makes it so much easier. But, the, you know, I have run into these problems when I've tried to cook more, when it's like, do I have a sweet potato at home? Because some weeks I buy them to cook things, and it's like that. So much complexity. I don't want to have that in my life. This yeah, is why I should fair. have I think, for every meal. Really simplify it. Yeah. Well, one, I love the pun recipe for yeah. the <laughs> I had, we just had to point that out. I had to point that out. So, uh, no, I get what you're saying, but I think I'm willing to embrace the complexity now. At least I'm going to try, and I'm hoping the app alleviates some of this. Yeah, because I want to. I'm. Tr- I do want to cook. Um, want to cook more and with more variety, but it does add a ton of complexity because of the number of ingredients you need, and then in tracking if you have those ingredients can be a real pain. So. Um, that was part of why I got paprika too. Cause I'm like the recipe tracking eno- alone is enough for me to, to warrant getting it. But I'm also ho- hoping, Hey, maybe these additional features can also 
you know, reduce the complexity and make this a feasible thing that I can add into my life long term. Yeah. That's good. We'll I'm, I'm curious if you actually end up cooking more because I, I went through a phase where I was like, you know, I think we've talked about this, where I was like, ah, oh, people say cooking is good for the soul and it'll, you know, such a good hobby. And I spent a couple months doing it and I, I just despise it. It is such a horrible waste of time. And I don't like, I mean, I, I don't mind variety in my meals, but I don't value it nearly high enough to justify it. So now I've kind of gotten to the point where at all times I must have only like eight things. I need milk, eggs, Huel, salads, um, what am I missing? Salmon and cheese. That's pretty much it. And then a couple of accoutrements for my salads. And I just, I, I try to just always have those things. And there is like a tiny bit of variety that goes through. Like I don't have salmon every day, but on those days I have eggs or more eggs. And sometimes I don't have one of those things, but it is so pleasant. I must say, because it is like, I always know what needs to be cooked. I always have the same thing. There's no thinking that goes into it. And then weekends, mm-hmm. if I go out to eat, that like makes it easier too. So I guess I do get some variety. Right, right. No, I've and I've gone through phases like that as well, where I've like really narrowed down exactly what it is I eat. I eat the same thing nearly every single day, and with very little variety uh, between the days. And that, and when I say like variety, I mean like the meals are identical, mm. like breakfast to breakfast to breakfast. I'm going to eat the exact same thing, and lunch to lunch to lunch is the exact same thing. Um, and it's helpful. It's helpful, but it can. You have to. I guess one, either really love what it is you're eating or to just have a high tolerance for um, consistency yeah. in your in your meals. You have to choose the right things. That's what I realized because I was trying it with more boring things for a while. But I really like eggs and I really like salmon. And right there is – and I don't mind salad. I can handle it. And so, so far, that system, which I've been doing for quite a while, is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll report back with paprika when I've had some more time. Excellent. Um, and let you know what I'm how I'm feeling and if it's working for me. So I want to hear what you mean by top level goal. Oh What's yeah, that this, all is, about? this has been hanging out here for a couple weeks, I think. Yeah, so I I put on the show notes just in quotation marks, top level goal. And I got thinking about this because of a new podcast i've been listening to called no stupid questions i don't know if you've heard of this but it's, i have not it's steven dubner from freakonomics and angela duckworth who is a psychologist um and although i think i think she's an academic psychologist like she does research and they talk about all kinds of stuff basically they just bring questions to the table and chat about it and uh, the podcast is good. It's not like my favorite, but it's pretty good. Um, but they discuss the idea of having a top level goal. And uh, Duckworth was very pro the idea. At least I got that sense where she thought it was good to have like a guiding principle. And Dubner was very skeptical. And they talked through it for a while and eventually sort of settled on a middle ground that a lot of the things that people describe as their uh, life's mission tend to be more like... Uh, bad mission statements that a company might put out like uh to make to make life better for all the people who interact with us and these like incredibly generic things that mean nothing and often more verbose than that um but the idea if you had a well-crafted mission the idea of it would be really useful um 
it, it actually could provide some clarity in making life decisions and in giving you the way I think about it is in giving you a very good heuristic to make decisions because we've touched on this a couple times before often in life it's hard to make decisions about things and you can try to weigh the pros and cons but you need like a decent heuristic it's like a good way to track how things are going to, and that's sort of what seasons and themes are about it's like in general, I want to aim more towards exploration. I don't need to make every choice for exploration, but like when I am caught in between two decisions, it's like lean in the direction of exploration. That might be what the season of exploration is like. And I think a top-level goal could serve somewhat similarly in even setting your other goals to say like, what what, what do I want to do in my life? Um, and I, I have had on my to-do list for a while to sit down and think about something like this, to write down a sentence or two clearly of like this is the plan or like this is what my plans will be about i guess that's really what it is and that would help me make decisions about like what do i want to be doing in five years what do i want to be spending my free time on right now um which might break down into like what should i be reading uh, what sorts of projects should i be working on because i sense for me one of my it's it's something i think is a strength and a weakness is that i'm very attracted to tons of different fields i read about lots of different things i dabble in all kinds of stuff i'm very into tech mainly but definitely jump into a lot of other things and while i like having a lot of general knowledge i do find that if i'm aiming for something specific if there is some some mission i want to accomplish i probably would need to narrow down a little bit and thinking about like is there such a mission or is the mission going to be more general would probably give me some clarity on that so anyway, that's that's the idea of what I'm thinking. I haven't really taken any steps to do it, but just an idea I'm kind of throwing out there. So when Dubner was skeptical, was it just because he didn't think this would be a useful tool, heuristic for people, or was it another reason? Uh, it's been a few weeks, so I should I should listen again. But I think it was a combination of it's probably obvious like your decisions in many cases are kind of obvious and you don't need something like this. And also that many of the things that people would describe as a mission statement are actually meaningless. Mm -hmm. Um, Gotcha. And I think I agree with both of those, particularly the latter, but I think there can still be value in some cases where there are things that you're not sure about. And if you wrote the right kind of a mission statement or a top level goal, that could be clarifying. Right. Yeah. No, this is really interesting. It's not some, it's something that I have been thinking about, but not as directly as you have been or were exposed to in this podcast. But it's something of what is my what are my goals or really goal single goal for my career or my life? And the it's hard, frankly. It's not something that I've really. I had ideas and put thought into it earlier, but now that I've have a few years of work experience, I'm sort of in a crossroads, I guess, of like, I'm not sure really what path I want to walk down and do I need to become more specialized or can I be more general? And I'm sure this could really, it's really been focused around my career, but it's, I guess, more expansive of really like my life in general. Like, do I want to stay in my current city or do I want to move? And if I'm going to move, why would I do that? And if I'm going to, if it's like, if I'm going to move for my career, I need to really understand what my career trajectory is. Otherwise, it wouldn't warrant moving. So those are some of the things that have like come to my mind as I think of like a goal like this. 
I guess sitting down and thinking hard, but me sometimes I just come up empty. Yeah. Like, well, I just don't know. I understand that. And I think that might happen to me too. But I, I also think that if you tried to sit down and put pen to paper, metaphorically, of course, I would never use physical paper. But um, if you were to do that, I think you might run into specific questions that would help you answer that. You know, you may find you can't answer the the top level goal, but you have some questions that you need to answer that would get you there. Like, why... Why do I care about this kind of work over this other work? Why do I care about this cause over this other cause? And how much do I care? And at least that gives you some targets of things to focus on to eventually plan out your life. Because I do find with myself, I have all these ideas of like things I might do later on. But I have rarely, I've sort of been like drifting towards them generally. But I've never written down like what would it take for me to decide on one of these things to feel more strongly about it. And until I have that idea, I think I will... I will be at risk of drifting aimlessly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to have to, I guess, put some time into that. I almost said put some time against that. The the danger, danger of uh, work verbiage slipping in. <laughs> you're being you're being corporatized. The other day, one of my friends said, "Could we perhaps connect later?" And I was like, "No, we can never. <laughs> no, we connect. cannot. <laughs> we can only talk like we can, regular humans. We can talk like." <laughs> I was just gonna say we can we can talk we can we can have a conversation but we cannot connect. <laughs> we cannot connect. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. No, it's so funny, and it's something that the work verbiage, the 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 corporate slang, is is infectious. It really is. It's like if you spend enough time in a corporate setting where everyone talks like this, it's inevitable that you are too gonna talk like that. And it's like you would never speak to your friend like that or your family members, but for whatever reason, in corporate, yeah. in the corporate culture, it's like it's it's its own language, its own slang. Uh, I keep a it's, note. It's real funny. I keep a note in my my work notes of things that I'm determined I can't say. Like I just write it down. It's like you you aren't allowed to use this phrase ever. Um, a, a couple of recent additions are like uh, experiencing headwinds. Or experiencing tailwinds easily the most confusing of all of them actually uh because headwinds certainly sounds like a good thing it's like ah headwinds like going forward but no in fact the winds are described by where they come from and so those are bad and tailwinds are good and it's like that yes. that is one of the most opaque of all of them recently that one's always made more sense to me though oh really i think of it like a sailing ship i mean i understand like, what it means but I, my initial reaction every time i hear it is like ooh, headwinds excellent <laughs> love headwinds <laughs> Um, because I don't sail ships in my free time, but, uh, Nor do I. <laughs> something that somebody brought up to me recently was a new one that has just popped up is tightening up on our objectives. And I was like, mm. does that mean that we're doing well or we're doing poorly? And he was like, no, poorly. actually it just means that we're trying to narrow the scope of our goals. And I was like, I got two guesses and got them both wrong. Like, these are not good words. Like, the point of language is to communicate an idea. And if people who have not heard the specific phrase before can't figure it out, it's bad language. It's not effective. Oh, yeah. It's so frustrating. I feel like that is a huge problem with the corporate culture speak. Is it obfuscates exactly what it is you want to say and what you want to talk about? You could say things much more plainly and clearly. Yeah. But you always have to massage the message. That's one I hate. That's one that should go on my list is massage, massage the message, massage the, the presentation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't, craft, well, one, crafting like, the email. Yeah, I crafted. Yeah, I got to craft the, the message. I got to, we need softer. We need to be, we, we need a softer touch tone. here. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The first time somebody told me that they, they were like, what we want to do is work against our objectives. 
And I, I mean, obviously after thinking in my, in context for a second or two, I figured it out. But at the time I was like, you mean we want to actively sabotage our chances of achieving our goals? We want to right. work against them? Don't against we want to work towards our, them? <laughs> toward them? Yes. No, it's I hear you. in total insanity. Yeah. Well, I, one, two, the, uh, the statement, I want to work against, we want to work against the objectives. One, it's confusing for the reason you point out. The second part is, isn't it obvious? <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are the <laughs> Not objectives. Not even worth saying. It's what objectives you said, means. You're, it's, right. That's the, what the word objectives means. Yeah. It's brutal. The, <sighs> the new one that gets me, and I do understand that there's like roots to this beyond business speak, but it has gotten way more common in business speak. And I think outside of a consulting company, you may not even, I think people may not even get this distinction. People will say strategic versus tactical, and they mean that those are opposites. And if you asked a person on the street, uh, people would say like, oh, strategic and tactical, like those are synonyms. But the way I have heard them used is strategic means big picture and tactical means means small details. So be tactical about uh, how you write this, I don't know, you write up this one page uh, deliverable and be strategic about how you plan your career. And that's fine, but it's, I, I just think we would all be better served by saying think big picture or watch the details. Um, as you say, they are, they are intentionally obfuscating a lot of meaning and sort of making it like a club of only a few people who understand what is being said. Yeah, that's that one. I've not heard that, but I have had a physical reaction of rage <laughs> against that. That one, I, I just I like I my body just tensed up and I'm like, that's awful. Don't do that. <laughs> well, one, to your point, they're very, to me, in a layman's speak, those are synonyms. Like I could swap those words out and now if I'm in a, if I were dealing with a specific, in a specific domain where perhaps like military strategy, like maybe those things do mean different, like you wouldn't swap. Those I think words, that's but in layman speak, yeah. you would say, okay, those are different. But one is like tactical. I don't think really means focus on small details. It means to follow tactics, which are, which are plans or a strategy. Mm. If I looked up the word tactic in action or strategy, carefully planned. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so being tactical means to follow tactics, right? So, which enha- means follow a strategy. Yeah. You, uh, I, so being, you and being so. strategic, they're the same word. You're saying the same thing twice and saying they mean something different. I mean, I think that they do, even in that definition, I do think that there is a distinction there that like the, the tactics follow the strategy. Like the strategy is the big plan and the tactics is the execution of the plan at a lower level. Um, but it is, it is just not a clear way to express that. Like if your goal is to use language as communication, which is what you would hope. Well, actually, it still is, I guess. If your goal is to communicate these ideas to the listener, then that's not effective. But if your goal is to mm. signal something about yourself, which is what business speak is fundamentally about, it's still communication. But what you're communicating is like a status or a a level of inside knowledge. You're like communicating to people that you're part of a group that understands these things. Yep. And yep. that's not it, – it means that you have to obfuscate the message to show that you understand how to obfuscate things. And that's yeah. – it's just like so I'm a part absurd. of the end group. Yeah. Yes, you're right. And I looked up strategic, and it has multiple definitions. The first is more in line with this corporate speak usage. It says relating to the identification of a long-term or overall aims or interests and the means to achieve them. But there's also, the second definition is carefully designed or planned to serve a particular purpose or advantage. Like, that doesn't have the the long-term connotation to it. Mm. And 
these words are just too similar in my opinion yeah and, i agree <laughs> which i guess was your entire point but i'm like yeah. i'm just so with you like i can rage against this with you <laughs> my top level um, goal is to only do tactics there will be no strategy my, t- my top level goal i will just be tactical tactical i'm 100 percent tact- i really i my skill set really revolves around the tactics and not around the strategy uh yeah we uh we need some new words or actually we need we the should old just words. use That's what we need we need the old words we should just be clear on what we mean you're right like big picture small picture like lo- like high level plans detailed lower level plans like what was the insufficient about those descriptions of the of what we're doing that we yeah. need to, they, to I use do. strategic and tactical yeah it's i think that it is fundamentally a status game though and like anybody in a big company i think sort of sees this where those things uh create barriers to entry that don't exist otherwise you know because if you if you hired an average person off the street to work in a white collar industry often it's not it's very hard to prove someone doesn't have the skills right so if you work in bricklaying it's very obvious like you could you could have somebody show you that they can do this and it's even true in something technical like programming it might be white collar but it's like there is a discrete skill here and you could give somebody a test much harder if you hire somebody as a consultant and so so much of proving your consulting skills is about signaling that you have been part of a consulting community in the past and you understand the jargon and so these are like i think it's pretty interesting from like a sociological perspective these are totally arbitrary things that have popped up in order to prove to other people that you are part of a group. And it really ices out new people who actually might be able to do the job. Like if somebody worked in in retail in China and tried to get a job in retail in America, they probably wouldn't know the verbiage, but they would have a good sense of like, what is marketing? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think they're often incorrect signals um, or poor proxies, but that is basically right. what they do, I think. And it's not, I get what you're saying, and I think that that's probably where this all stems from, but it's not impossible to give a test to a consultant to test them on their basic understanding of marketing or business finance. Like, just some simple things to say, like, well, if you're going to consult a business, you do need to have a basic understanding of business concepts. But... Maybe. I, <laughs> I think a lot of those concepts are a lot softer. Like, you could do that in finance, but I'm not sure you could in marketing. I mean, I have a deeply skeptical take on marketing that I think almost all of it is pretty much made up. But I guess you could ask I mean, if people is. agree with it the is. conventional wisdom. But there are, like, academic concepts within the field of marketing. And whether or not they're, like, valid, they the exist. The five Ps, the four Cs. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you could just ask and be like, how have you employed the five? Like, well, can you define them? And how have you used them in the past? And blah, whatever. I don't know. It's definitely a softer test. It's not like, hey, program yeah. FizzBuzz for me. Um, but where it's clear whether or not you got the answer right. But it would be easier than creating a new language. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> to Although identify this, yeah, this seems whether to happen or not, organically, you know, which is wild. There's always new things. It's emergent order, I guess. It's frustrating. It's it what is. It is. From yeah. from where I sit, I just find it completely useless, and I have little patience for it. Like, let's just speak plainly. I'm with you, Greg. <laughs> I am with you. All right, what else should we tackle on the notes? Uh, it's it's your choice. Mm, let's talk. Uh, let's talk iPads. Okay. So i 
I found myself very slowly slipping into using my iPad in place of my laptop. And we, we've checked in on this topic several times throughout this podcast. I think almost every episode we've talked at least a little bit about what tools we're using to do stuff. And I have often said that the iPad is not replacing my primary computer. Um, but I think now it officially has more share of my time by a pretty wide margin. It, it always had more share in certain things. Uh, I was using it more for reading and videos. Um, but now I think even for things that are that are like cruising the web and doing research on something, um, I think the iPad is is significantly more uh, more used for those things. And the reason I started thinking about this was the other day I left my iPad in a different room and was sitting next to my laptop. And I wanted to do research on this particular thing I was interested in. And then I wanted to buy a thing on the internet. And I could have picked up my computer, but I was like, ah, I want my iPad. And just that moment, I thought, I have never consciously thought about this before, but I actually really would much prefer my iPad for this thing, which is a task a computer is well suited to. This is a thing in the past I would have leaned on my computer for. Um, And so I, I just think now my iPad is my first choice and I need a reason to use the computer where in the past, the opposite was the case. The computer was the choice. And if I had a good reason to use the iPad, I might get it. Interesting. So where were you when you had this Um, experience in my living room physically on the couch? Uh, I don't have a couch yet, (laughs) but in a chair, (laughs) I was waiting like, well, what was the pause for? But whatever. That's funny. Um, (laughs) Okay. So you're in your living room, like in a more relaxed state, I'll say. That makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. That, well, I find that the iPad is a great vehicle for cruising the internet and doing research. Now, I guess it would depend on the level of research. If I'm, like, trying to take a lot of notes or document things, I may... I don't have the I don't have the, the iPad Pro. So, you know, you might have a different experience. But I would think I would probably move to my computer for that. But if I'm just reading or like watching some like review videos or whatever, I would go to my iPad for that. One thing is that, mm. and the reason I asked where you were is because using my computer, my laptop in my living room on my couch is not really a good experience because I went with the yeah. 15 inch model and it's just a little too big really to comfortably use on my lap. Uh, I feel so, similarly, although not that it's too big, that, just that it's wrong. The form factor is not good in, in lounging. No, it's not. And so the iPad is just way, it's just much better suited to that. Yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah, I think. That's interesting. I was going to ask my follow-up question, too, was going to be, do you think the nature of what your work is is changing more? And is that why it accounts for more of your time? Or is it really, like, many tasks that you were doing on your computer have switched over to the iPad? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't considered deeply. I have been programming at home a little bit less, and that's part of it because I I wouldn't program on the iPad. Although I have been investigating that. That's a topic for another day, probably. Um, but I've gotten a lot closer to having a workflow for that. But it, the experience is still just so much better on the computer. That's where I would go. I guess yeah, a lot of my free time has shifted. I I have done a lot more reading. I read a lot of newsletters and a lot of online articles, and that is a place where the iPad excels. And then I also manage email a lot. I don't have to respond mostly, but just like go through stuff and organize. Um, Mm -hmm. And the iPad has been really good, especially now that I switched to spark. As we talked about last time, the iPad is really good for that. Yeah. 
so I, I guess a combination actually to some degree probably the things that i i spend my time on has have changed okay i was going to say that for the first time i had a strong urge to have an ipad pro because i was trying to do some research and the ipad sufficed but it wasn't great like i just felt like a bigger screen here with more just more screen real estate the ability to patch attach keyboard to this um and run side-by-side applications in a much more seamless manner would have felt would have been nice it wasn't something i wanted to turn to my computer to like i wanted to use my ipad but the ipad i had i was sufficient for the job but could have been a much better experience had i had a better ipad Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I uh, I'm very torn right now, waiting for the new iPads because it seems like I buy iPads constantly. I'm sure the listeners, especially with the frequency <laughs> we do shows, I'm like constantly on the hunt for an iPad. But I demoted my previous iPad before the Pro to my content consumption iPad, and it it's much smaller. But I uh, <laughs> sounds insane. But one of the reasons I selected my current apartment is that it has an ideally sized shelf in the shower that is set away from the shower head in the perfect position that you can put an iPad there and watch TV while you're in the shower. And I must say, for anybody who hasn't experienced this, there is nothing better than having a way to play videos in the shower. It is so good. I've watched so many YouTube videos. I've watched like significant portions of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It is so entertaining. It makes your showers infinitely better. Um, but recently, there was a shower tragedy in which case, in in which um, my iPad was not propped up properly, and it slipped off the side and hit the side of the bathtub, which is oh. very hard. And just yeah, huge dent to the side of the iPad, and it kept working totally mm. fine for maybe like forty five seconds, <laughs> and then it just it's nothing, absolutely nothing. I was waiting for that for the time increment there. I was yeah. like, was it a day? Was it a week? No, it, it was, was forty five seconds. <laughs> well, it, it was so sad to me because my iPad has stood up to a crazy amount of wear and tear i mean i drop it on the floor uh, definitely it has gotten very wet in the shower and stuff and it's not supposed to be waterproof and i've always thought those were unbelievably uh robust devices but one thing it cannot take is being dropped on a super hard surface with no yes. give like w- mm-hmm. a wood floor might have been fine but yeah the porcelain or whatever that is is bad so anyway i guess you need to th- invest like for the next ipad if you're going to move it to the shower ipad it needs to be like in a in a strong case like That's, one with like a, a big fat like rubber bumper yeah. so if it were to take a uh, a, a, a dive into yeah. the tub yeah that's yep no I've, I've already been thinking about that so I, I think i want to wait for the new generation see what the new cheapest one is because i really do just want a really nice screen for videos but it might have no bezel that's uh that's one of the rumored possibilities and that would be a huge Whoa. upgrade so would you go would you back to back years pick up ipad pro no i wouldn't get a pro i would get the very cheapest one because actually so you're saying that even the cheapest one will be that's the speculation oh it's possible now that is huge that's big that's big even for me yeah no i would love that but i'm basically torn between that and an android an android tablet which i would not like at all i'm pretty sure but um i might be able to get one cheap although they're not i don't know for all the the android people who are like the apple stuff so expensive comparable uh, even just screens comparable screens on android stuff are not cheap um i think no, i'd much rather have an not. ipad i think you would too i would deter you from going down the android yeah route i've just heard bad things about their I've tablet platform really yeah tablet experience so too. and you can pick up the 10.5 inch 
which might even be bigger, right? If it's the same form factor, yeah. but with a bezel-less screen. Um, oh, they've gotten so cheap. The base price is three twenty nine, yes. I think, but sometimes they're, they're on sale for like two thirty. Yeah, you can get them for two thirty, two fifty, pretty regularly. So I think you're going to be better off going that route. If they don't remove the bezel, I might buy the last generation one because it won't be a big difference, and it probably no. would be under two hundred at that point. Yeah, yeah, and you maybe I would think that right about now is if you start to look. Well, things may be different this year. But my experience has been the summer leading into the fall, like midsummer leading into the fall, iPads all over the place will drop significantly. Like that from that two from that three thirty price, it's going to drop to two fifty regularly um, because they're clearing inventory because the next generation of iPads is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should look at that. The thing is, I have a hard time buying before I see what the new ones will be because if there's no mm-hmm. bezel, that is such a big upgrade. That right. for content consumption no, I hear device, you. that's killer. I totally hear you. Yeah, this is an interesting case where you're well. One, it may be less likely that they go on sale because they might already be shorter on supply. Mm-hmm. And two is that there's going to be a form factor change, or not really form factor, but a screen change, like from bezels to bezelless. Yeah, which would make me want to hold off as well. But if they do come out, you may get lucky enough to say, okay, it still looks pretty much the same. Let me see if I can find the 6th gen mm-hmm. instead of the 7th gen. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the that's what I'm watching the Apple events for. We still, I guess, have a month before they start, but I'm very interested to see what they release this year, as always. Yeah. Right now, in, in a true tale of woe, right now the device I have been forced to use for shower iPadding is this... Uh, ipad that i got mid-college i think it's one of the oldest tech devices i've used i it's got to be 2014 ish so over six years old um and it's so slow it no longer can get the new ios like starting with 13 it was ineligible so it's stuck on 12 and so i keep finding these weird things where i'm like oh i forgot it used to be that way because it hasn't gotten to 13 and it is crazy slow like unlocking it first it doesn't have touch id which is oh so terrible (laughs) um and even after i type the code it's like a noticeable amount of time for the springboard to load just to get to the home screen and then you like Mm -hmm. open an app and it's like waiting 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 oh youtube is here finally (laughs) it takes so long to pull (laughs) anything up yeah that's always frustrating so yeah, it sounds like you're gonna be pushed to get a new one. I, you got to, I'm forced and you're gonna to just no be in pain. <laughs> you're just gonna be really in a bad spot until then, right? Yeah. Well, that's probably October, so I got some waiting time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm really pumped for iOS 14. Oh yeah, I'm excited. How come? I think I'm gonna totally redo my home screen. Oh, like, the do widgets. All widgets. Mm-hmm. Do all widgets. I'm gonna have like a widget screen. I think that'll be my calendar. Just a full screen of calendar. And then maybe a full screen for my to-do. Interesting. And maybe a full screen for the weather. And then, like, everything else just lives in the app drawer. Interesting. I We should we should compare home screens at that point. I'm not sure what I will okay. do. I don't think it'll be that. I think I'll make sure I only have one screen that I ever see. Right now, I'm on one screen I only use, and I think I'll never move from that. But I could be wrong. I'm a one-screen-er as well. <laughs> One screen guy, but I really could see, I have always desired to have a screen where I can, that is large enough to display a lot of useful information. And it seems like the phone fat, the phone's physical dimensions have reached that point 
And with the addition of widgets, I'm excited to see what app developers do with their widgets. And I can see them being very, very useful. Like at the glance of my screen, I can see all my to-dos and act upon them, see all my calendar events and act upon them, Um, see everything about the weather that's occurring without clicking into the app. Um, That sounds really nice. So I think I would trade off like having a single screen for just a couple swipes and have all this information present all the time. Yeah, I, I can see that case. I'll I'll be interested to hear what you think about that. I'm not sure how I would like that, but I, I can definitely see some merit. I just find like clicking into the apps. Well, sometimes my apps are nested, right? So I'll have mm-hmm. collections. And then, so it's a couple clicks to get in and then it's some load time. And... Yeah, I don't do folders. That's a strict policy. It's got everything's mm-hmm. got to be one tap from the home screen, and if it's not, see then without I folders, do a I wouldn't have a one screen view. I'd have yeah, like I've a been over. very strict about that. It's like there's things that don't make it on the home screen. Even some things I use a lot don't make it on the home screen because I I feel like it's going to take me just as long if I search at that point. I might as well just accept that I'm going to search all the time. So you have multiple screens; they're just full of apps you never look at. Yeah, I have like four screens of a bajillion apps, but I only let sixteen on the home screen. Hmm. See, I try to get everything on the home screen. Oh, that's distressing. Oh, and it's like the top two rows are like collections, and then it, then there's actual apps from that point oh, forward. And I search; I never click in normally. Well, it's not all. There's like well, a why couple are they on your home collections. Screen? Interesting. There are a couple. Well, because I only want one screen. Interesting. I mean, I functionally only have one screen. I would never go to the other screens. They're in there somewhere. I that's fair. Tried to organize them once and totally gave up. The organization scheme of iOS 14 seems to like a lot more sense. Yeah. Like a single app drawer that holds everything, and then you can do with the screens what you want. They can be complete widgets. You can load them up with apps. You can do whatever you want. Should we share our home screens with this episode, Greg? We can, yeah. Okay. Oh, mine, uh, I love the look of my home screen. That is another thing. I really like to open my phone and be like, ah, that looks nice. And that's what is why your background no right now? It's actually one of the defaults. Uh, it's the black and white default abstract junk i don't like it in general like in the in the sense of the image is ugly but it fits having uh very colorful icons on top of it very nicely Mm -hmm. yeah see like i like the with the single screen you only have the two dots at the bottom it works two dots but it's cluttered Ooh, that's wow see the bottom down there yeah no i know it's just that's crazy (laughs) to me i mean i have three more screens but even scrolling to them is stressful i find (laughs) it's just so much (laughs) junk in here see like i don't like my stress is on the home screen but i don't ever pay attention to it because it's just in those collections (laughs) and i never click into those ones there's only one collection that i do click into sometimes which is the health collection because it has the collection of health apps so here okay so here's my rationale and why i've organized it this way and i originally stole it from gray so if you think that you're going to search for things anyway, there's no point wasting valuable real estate on them. You know, like you might as well just hide them away. And so my thinking was there are 16, the 16 things I use the most get to live on the home screen because I will memorize exactly where they are so I can tap on them without even thinking. And everything else is through search. I could put more things on the home screen, but I don't think I have the capacity to remember those. And often it'll take two taps anyway, and search might be pretty much just as fast. So at that point, it's like, at least this way I get 16 fast access apps, plus anything in the dock. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, I nothing would be fast, be nearly that fast. My, my, my dock has a collection in it, 
which oh. sucks, but that is that's the case. Wow. I'm not a fan of that. What but, collection uh, makes it in the dock? The dock it has it has Todoist, Fantastic Al, and Notion in it. Hmm. That's interesting. So what I'm I'm thinking right now as I look at my screen, like the top two rows are all collections. I should just move those to the next screen over, and then that would bring sixteen. And then through some careful thought, I could define a few of these to remove. It works for you. You should go with it. I'm I'm just surprised. I I haven't been I haven't been satisfied with this for a while. It's been where it's like this is usable. It's okay, but I don't. I'm not loving it. But I guess you know iOS 14 is right around the corner, and everything's going to change. The point, yeah. My dog is quite different than yours. I'm surprised to hear you say that. Mine is overcast messages todoist and safari and i calendar a lot but fantastical does not make it in the dock see i thought like when i was getting on to fantastical i was like i need to i need to have fantastical like front and center yeah i mean there's never time get started with an app that way i do get that yeah yeah i probably open overcast well i guess some now some days i do a lot of texting but i i think of myself as someone who doesn't do a lot of texting but i guess occasionally i do but between overcast and messages that's probably like 50 percent of my app opens on the whole device Mm -hmm. i have safari my productivity collection and then ynab is like the bottom row it's the home is the what do you call it the bar wait the dock the dock i thought you just said something different was in your dock no I have Safari, a collection of to do as Fantascal. Oh, and oh! I asked what was in the collection. Now I see. Okay. Yes, gotcha. and then I have YNAB as the other app. So I have three boxes, but I have five total apps. Oh, I see. I see. It's complicated over here. Oh, I'm gonna <laughs> gonna have to cool down from that distressing discussion. <laughs> All right. Should we talk about anything else? Oh, well, you can we do mm. your Google Calendar to iCal thing? Sure, that'll be quick. All right. So I've just been kicking around this idea that maybe I don't want my calendar to live in Google Calendar. And maybe it would be better suited to live in iCal since I'm already invested in the Apple ecosystem. So then I started to do some research. I'm like, okay, well, what does it look like to use iCal through Fantastical? And it's pretty much the same. But the big outage or thing I haven't solved yet is like, how do I invite other people to my events? Mm, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I used iCal through Fantastical for my first couple weeks of Fantastical, and it was it actually was nicer in some ways. Like the integration is smoother; it can into it can grab things from your device without any additional logins and stuff, and that is really nice. Um, but yeah, I don't know how iCal invitations work, but iCal allows you to invite people to events, so it's definitely possible. Yes, right, and I was. I might send you some test invites for nothing. Okay. Like I'll make it clear, but I need well, to, or I tried to send it to myself, but it was confusing. It was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> I was like, no, invite me. <laughs> I'm not sure how our invite system is working right now because I sent you an invite for this episode. And five minutes later, you sent me one. <laughs> sent me an, an invite. I didn't get, an, I know. And actually it's funny. It was a lag issue because okay. I sent you an invite and I thought that I had sent it before. And then I checked my phone. I'm like, Oh, I got an invite. For Ethan. <laughs> and then it was like a chicken or the egg. I'm like, well, you sent it first. I don't know. but and that's better it's better to be over communicate than under communicate when i saw that you had sent me an invite i was like well we're on the same page (laughs) (laughs) yes very true so what what has made you are there any specific issues with google calendar that make you think that it would be better not to use it or is it just that you want the all apple setup 
that's that is the primary motivation there hasn't been anything like terrible about google calendar but it's also um just not doesn't feel as integrated Mm. as as it could um and i do have a shared calendar that i have through iCalendar with my wife and we've used it from time to time but it's certainly something that I would like to embrace more mm. and like it's already set up and it's like integrates already into her phone. So rather than having to recreate all that with uh, Google Calendar. Yeah, I could definitely see the value there. Interesting. Because we have yeah. a shared note too. So it's like we have a couple of shared things across the Apple ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So like shared notes, shared calendar. Like if I could get everything in one ecosystem, I feel like I would hit tech nirvana so do you have productivity nirvana of course yes then everything would be easy work would take no time <laughs> do you do you have the iCal shared calendar loaded into fantastical mm-hmm. oh so it is available okay yep it's there it's like noted too like that it's shared yeah very interesting i don't know i'm curious i'm curious where you land on that i feel like you may you may be at the peak now but it it is worth exploring some other things but i wouldn't be surprised if you end up back here because i think the worry is that if you're on like another machine or something to get to apple calendar you have to log into icloud like i wouldn't want to do that on my work computer for example if i were ever on yeah, a but Windows I've, computer on my work computer i downloaded the fantastical app mm-hmm. And now I have the Fantascal Mac app installed on my work computer, logged into my Fantascal account. So now it's like I have access to my iCalendar through Fantascal. Oh, it does do that? Ever... Yes, it does. Oh, that's surprising. Interesting. Like, Interesting. I don't have to log in to... Yeah. Well, I'll have to double check. I'll have to double check. But I don't think there's any problem syncing. Mm. Like, I didn't have to log into iCloud on the actual computer for fantastic how to work properly but it's maybe this has all occurred re- very recently and i uh haven't been i haven't touched my work computer so it's possible that the syncing isn't working right did you was you were you under the impression that you had to be logged in yeah i just assumed i thought iCal was not was not something managed like your iCal login wasn't something managed by fantastic i thought it just linked to the underlying calendars on your mac where your mac keeps those calendars and it would just display them it does do that but like you can i think you can interact with fantastical wherever and it will all sync back uh that and, I like i gave fan i gave fantastical an app specific password in which i'm not iCal. Sh- yeah uh, so okay. this was something a little sense. new to me but when you are connecting into the apple ecosystem from a third party that is allowed to do this Mm -hmm. you have to generate an app specific password so like you go through the icloud website and you say give it a name and then generate the password and then you give that to the application and then it's allowed to sync yeah and like once that connection's made it's 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 i don't know if i'll have to refresh it but it's working now like it's been a few days and it still works that makes a lot of sense interesting Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing whether that uh, improves things. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. I think we can call it a day. Yeah. It's been a good episode. I hope the listeners agree. <laughs>